The Late Show Poncho with Stephen Colbert. Are there any questions I can answer before we get going? I saw you first, eager young man. You're going to go far. What's your question? Uh, so, can you do this bit with Jon Stewart about you being a turd miner? I did it once. Not, I didn't do it once. <laughs> well, we did it twice. Uh, the one was a callback, but go ahead. I was just wondering, how, like, what was, what did that come from? It came from this. We were in Boston for the 2004 Democratic Convention, and we we were all tired. It was the last night. It was the last night. We'd been up. We'd been up there all week. We've been going hell bent for leather because it's a lot of it's discovery. You don't know what's going to happen. It's hard to plan. We do, I was doing tons. I was doing like shooting two field pieces a day. It was it was crazy. We were all just really tired, and <laughs> we sat back the night before after our, we recorded our show. We went and we watched Obama give his speech, and Obama got up there and talked about being the son, uh, the grandson of a sheep herder or a goat herder. That's what it was, a goat herder. And I think somebody else had already gone out there and said that they were the son of a dairy farmer or milkman and another someone else has gone out there and said like their father worked in a steel mill so we're like well these people are trying to out humble origin each other <laughs> they're trying to out humble <laughs> and, and i said to john i said john well you know i am i am but the son we were literally watching the speech i said john i am but the son of poor appalachian turd miners <laughs> And and then and and they said, oh, shit, that's a scene, that's a scene. So we worked on doing that at the desk with John the next night. That I, I'm, I was not going to be out humbled by these candidates. <laughs> and then the one that John came up with and said, well, of course, of course, you you know, your parents wanted you to be a turd miner too. He said, oh yeah, they would go down there getting turd lung and. Uh, <laughs> And I, and I and he, so they wanted that for you, of course, John. They wanted that for. In the old country, our family had been goat ball lickers. <laughs> you have to understand, keeping the goats happy was the most important thing you could do, and the most important way to do that was <laughs> was to work the balls, John. And my favorite part was <laughs> is that so I'm sitting here. It was one of these things where the old Daily Show desk was really long. And you'd sit and you would do the bit with them. And when we were writing it, John couldn't stop crying from laughter. And, and so if you actually watch it, the camera's almost never on him because I'm just trying to make him laugh, which was my favorite thing to do with The Daily Show the entire time I was there. There are a lot of Daily Show pieces where the camera stays on me, even if John has a line, because the way the cameraman's... Yeah. The, the director's waiting for the camera to, for him to stop laughing. So I'm doing things like, it's all true, John. <laughs> John, it was all true. They were, they were goat ball lickers, John, <laughs> just trying to catch his eye. So that's how it came about. We were watching Obama's, that, that famous, you know, there's, there's no red America, there's no blue America, there's only the United States of America. But what we got out of it was turd mining. <laughs> so anytime you... That was 19 years ago. That was 19 years ago. God bless it. Anybody up here? Yes, young lady. What's your favorite? Oh, my God, so many. I lived there 11 years. My favorite memory of living in Chicago. Oh, uh, this is a weird one. I mean, this is one comes to mind. It's not really, like, my favorite memory of living in Chicago, but, um, God, so many of them are come to mind. 
uh, in there with my, my girlfriend, who had just moved you know, my wife, Evie, who had just moved to Chicago to see how this whole long-distance thing would work when we were together, because she lived in New York and I lived in Chicago, and she didn't like her job and I did like mine. So she moved to Chicago, got an apartment near mine, but not the same apartment, very important to both of us, <laughs> even though we both just live with each other, but psychologically. And uh, we went for a walk up uh, Lincoln Park, way north, and we were up by... Uh, not Belmont Harbor, Montrose Harbor, up there. And there's a clock tower right on the lake. There's a building, a beautiful clock tower on the lake. And I, we walked by, and these people had all the pieces for the clock tower, giant gears, like, you know, Big Ben kind of gears, not that big, but those kind of gears, laying out on blankets on the lawn on this beautiful spring May day in Chicago. And I just went over and said, well, what, what is this? And they said, oh, well, we're a private consortium of... Um, uh, Chicagoans who have decided to fix the bell, uh, the clock tower, would you like to see? And we went in, and we went up to the top, and they showed us how they were going to fix the clock tower and the work that had gone into it and the bells that would ring and chime. And that was such a small-town feeling in this giant town of Chicago that is one of the times I felt most at home and so proud to have asked this girl to move to Chicago <laughs> where there were these lovely people taking care of this old clock tower. Chicago's great. I mean, are you from Chicago? An hour. What I like about Chicago is that it is, it's got, doesn't have as much of what New York has, mm. but it's got everything New York has, just in slower and smaller volume. And it's also got a really small town feel, depending on what neighborhood you, you live in. It's just the greatest, it's the greatest, greatest city I've ever lived in. All right. Good hot dogs, good hot dogs, too. <laughs> yes, yes, ma'am. Oh, um, if you could have anything from Chicago here in New York, what would you have here? Garrett's popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> On a cold day, walk into a Garrett's and get some hot caramel popcorn. That smell. Yeah. Oh, no, the, 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 the Blummer Chocolate Company. That's what I would have here. You guys remember the Blummer Chocolate Company? The Blummer Chocolate, there's a chocolate roasting company. They, they roast chocolate beans, for those who don't know, the actual, the cocoa beans in Chicago. And Chicago on the lake there, it's a prairie on a lake, and it has, you think, you think where you grew up in Canada, where you're in Canada, that's flat. Chicago's absolutely, it's an onion field and then lake. And, <laughs> and there, they get these temperature inversions there where the, the air just stays in one spot and doesn't move. Even though it's called the Windy City, often there's no air at all. And it's just this cap, this dome, of air that just stays over the city for a while. And if on one of those days, the Blummer Chocolate Company, which is just outside the loop, if they roast their beans on that day, the entire city of Chicago smells like freshly baked brownies. Oh. And you can explain oh. that to people, and they go, bull and then one day they'll walk out. My wife, Evie, when she moved to Chicago, she, she, I told her about that. She's like, that's not true. And then one day she called me from work after I got her to move to Chicago. She goes, it happened. It's happening today. Wow. I, I walked out going, "Where? who's baking brownies? And everywhere I go, everywhere you go in the city, it smells like fresh baked brownies on, on, on a bay. And then I met the Blummer people. I was down in, in Florida once, and I ran into these people. We just were sitting, sitting around, and we started talking. And they said, oh, you're from Chicago. We're from Chicago. What do you do? I run a chocolate company. I said, are you Blummer? And he goes, I am. I'm the son of Blummer. Wow. And, and I said, oh, my God. And his wife goes, yeah, that's what it smells like from five miles away. 
But in person, when he comes home, he smells like an ashtray because the oils, the heavy oils, fall on the clothes of everybody nearby. Oh. And he goes, on a, on a roasting day, she won't let me in the house. I have to change in the garage. Oh, wow. Anyway, that's what I would take from Chicago. Yeah. And, uh, yes, young lady, yes. Ooh, man. <laughs> um, I think I would like to have dinner with my dad. Aww. That's what I'd like to do. I'd like to have dinner with my dad. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the day I, my father lived to be 53 years, seven, uh, 53 years, 273 days old. And the day I turned 53, 274, days old, I thought, well, what do I want to do? What do I want to do? And I thought, well, what would he want to do? Well, if he was anything like me, he'd want to see his kids. Like, I want to do that thing he never got to do on that day he never got to live. So I went around the country over the next three days, and I visited my kids, two at college, different colleges, and then one, I just went and did something with my son who was still at home. And they did not ask, like, Dad, what are you doing here? <laughs> Which is, they shouldn't. There's no reason why they should have asked. I'm glad they didn't ask. But I did that. So in the same way, I'd love to just go have dinner with him and say, so, how did you... How did you build the farthest wall? And I'll explain what that means at the end of the show. <laughs> All right. Uh, yes, ma'am, and the blonde hair, yes. Happy birthday. Thank you. Do I have any advice for your 20s? Uh, don't worry. <laughs> it won't help. <laughs> I worried so much when I was your age. Like, well, what have I chosen to do with my life? And will I ever work? And I don't know. Why won't she return my call? And, <laughs> and not, uh, none of those things were that wor they weren't worth worrying about. Just work hard and, and be good friends with people, and it's all going to be fine. Don't worry about it, okay? <laughs> Anybody else? Any other questions? Yes, sir, with the beard. Mr. Beard, yes. Yes, what, what if you gave up anything for a win? Uh, well, thank you for asking. <laughs> I sure enough did. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. <laughs> uh, where are you from? Are you from North Carolina? Mississippi. Mississippi, okay, that's the real South. <laughs> All roads lead north from Mississippi. <laughs> Um, what did I give up for Lent? I gave up for sure. I gave up peanut M&Ms, which is my great weakness. And I, and, uh, and I also gave up um, certain aspects of using my phone. I was really tempted just to get a, take my SIM card and put it in a flip phone for 40 days. But I use it too much for work. So I've given up certain things that suck me in. I won't go to the, I won't go to the website or app Reddit for the next 40 days. <laughs> because Reddit is an, a bottomless hole of interest for me. And I, like, I get, my, I get my report back at the end of the week. You guys look at the report. Your phone gives you a report of how much you looked at your phone on Sundays. Yeah. Nothing bums me out quicker yeah. to find out that I looked at my phone 10 hours and 17 minutes a day on average, and I'm down 15% from the week before. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. Yeah. my goal... Yeah. My goal is to only use my phone to, like, watch a video or listen to audio that I need for the show or to use it as a phone. Those are the two things I want to use it for, and that's it. And, and I hope to, like, just spend the rest of the time reading novels. That's, that's my goal. And to pray every day. That's that. I want to probably say a prayer 
I haven't done it yet today. A prayer every day of any kind. Our Father, whatever, I'll take what I can get. Just to do a little something. Just to put a, a mark on the windowsill every day. And hope that, hope that self-actualizes. A- anybody ever read Franny and Zoe by J.D. Salinger? And that, uh, that Franny is trying to do the pilgrim's prayer? Have mercy on me, Lord Jesus. Have mercy on me. Until it self-actualizes in her heart and she can pray without thinking about it. I don't mean to do that, but that's the reference I'm making. <laughs> Last question. Hi and away. Anybody else over here? Just Then I'll take you, young, uh, young lady, right there. What is, how, what is your best parenting advice? My best parenting advice? Yeah. <laughs> They're smarter than you think. They're listening more often than you imagine. And... Your job, eventually, I find, is to pay attention to who your child is becoming as opposed to trying to make them into who you think they should be. And I would say, because there's so many data points there that you don't know about. There's so many data points going there that you don't know about, and the fact that the child isn't conforming to your expectations has nothing to do with whether the child's proper development. It has to do with your expectation of that. That and the best advice I ever got was from Maurice Sendak when I interviewed him and I said, well, how, how, what do you think is important about raising a child? And he said, just love them unconditionally. And that's what I try to remember. Is that at the very least, just, just love your children. I'll tell you, are we ready to go? I'll tell, you, I'll tell you one quick story about your child being smarter than you think, is that... So, my uh, darling wife, Evie, as, as, as you were uh, so accurately identifying her, my darling wife, Evie, uh, when our, our youngest son, John, who is now six foot one and a sophomore in college, when he was, you know, a baby in arms, um, kind of hold his head up, but that's about it. Um, I come home, because I used to work seven days a week, essentially, because I didn't know what would hit. I didn't know where in this business that I'd chosen to do, where most people are unemployed, I had to keep working to see which one of them would turn into something, which one of them turned into the Colbert Report. And so, and here I am now. But um, I'm working on a Sunday, working on a book, I think, with Paul, Paul Donello. And I come home, it's about three o'clock in the afternoon, I'm just doing sort of a morning writing in the city. I come home, and the, the, the children have just destroyed her. She's a grease spot. And I say, give me that baby. Give me that baby. Get out of here. Go call your friend Diane. Go see a movie or something. Go see Amelie or something. Go, go see that. And she goes, I can't leave you here. You've been working seven days a week. Uh, yeah, uh, they're going to tear the flesh from your bones. And I said, I think I can handle three little children. She leaves. Five minutes later, they've torn the flesh from my bones. <laughs> I have a six-year-old, I have a three-year-old, and I have a babe in arms. Those are the, the, the kids right there. Five minutes later, I am screaming at them. They are crying. My daughter... I mean, five minutes later. And my daughter turns me... She she runs up to her bedroom, and I follow her up there, and Peter, my middle son, follows me. I'm holding the baby in my arms. And she turns to me from her bed. She goes like, Why are you yelling at us? I said, Because it's my job as your father to discipline you. Why do you have to discipline us? I said, Because if I do not discipline you... If I do not teach you how to behave, when you're older, you will be animals and no one will want you around. And, she, and I said, so I, so I have to teach you. So she pauses for a moment, and she looks up at me from her tear-stained uh, pillow, and she says, this is how you teach children? <laughs> By making us cry? <laughs> Six years old. And I did the thing she didn't expect. I burst out laughing. 
because I knew I had lost. I had yeah, lost yeah. maybe for the rest of my life every <laughs> argument with her, and I kind of have. Yeah. I had lost so magnificently to my, to my daughter that I laughed, and she didn't expect that, and that made her laugh, and then Peter started laughing, and then the baby started giggling, and, uh, and then we all just jumped up on her bed, and I like, read stories or something like that. But that was it. Like, it's, you're not going to win. You're, I mean, you're not going to win. <laughs> all right. Let's, uh, let's go. Hey. So, before I go... Who was asking the question? Oh, about the farthest wall. So the farthest wall. There's a poem that a friend of a friend wrote when I was in college. This person just for, for fun wrote sonnets. And this person wrote a sonnet that I've always really enjoyed. And I'll remember all of it except one line right here. It goes like this. When father died, he built a spacious wing, but blew a castle wall away to do it. Then only left the frame for his young king to make his own and sometimes wander through it. That day I left the weeping house alone and stood beneath the open skies as the wind wept through the open stone and stood the cold and stood against their cries. For years I've been avoiding your new hall while gaining strength and learning carpentry, wondering how you built the farthest wall, that I might furnish my own family and tender yet another prince of fools and make him strong and leave him all my tools. That's it. Hey, this is Stephen with just a little addendum to the podcast. That poem, The Farthest Wall, that I recite uh, just a minute ago, um, I thought I knew who wrote that. And I contacted the person, and he said, no, I didn't, but thanks for checking. So I have no idea who wrote that poem. If you know who wrote that poem, please send an email to LateShowPodShow, all one word, LateShowPodShow at CBS.com, so we can give credit where credit is due, and I can thank whoever that was for 40 years of having that little gem in the hip pocket of my heart. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. The Late Show will be back May 1st with all new episodes. If you're enjoying The Late Show Pod Show, leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. For more exclusive Late Show content, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Late Show on YouTube.